Our scripture reading this morning is coming from the book of Psalms, Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we come to you in worship and as we come to you to open your word and to hear from you, Father, I pray that you would show us, show us delightful things in this psalm, this psalm of your servant, David. Father, I pray specifically for those here this morning who are suffering, whose lives are full of trouble of any kind. Father, I pray that that the words of David uh, by your Holy Spirit would breathe fresh courage and hope into their life. And Father, as, uh, as I think about those who are not suffering this morning, whose, life's, whose lives are going uh, rather smoothly, Father, we know that suffering will sometimes strike. And so, Father, we want to fortify our hearts. We want to prepare ourselves for suffering, and we want to be prepared to help others in their suffering. So, Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning from your word. Father, we think of our missionaries in Italy. We, we know that they've had several new families join their church. Father, I pray that you would give them wisdom and how to get to know them better and how to minister well to them. And Father, for me this morning, I ask that, that you would give me a clear head. I pray that you would keep me from error. Father, I pray that the words I speak would, would be helpful to your people. So Father, guard me, guard my lips and uh, keep me from error. Father, we ask all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. In 1529, and I recognize that as soon as I get those words out of my mouth, I lose probably about 25% of you, but uh, in 1529, it must have been a wonderful year, Martin Luther published his large catechism, and it was meant for pastors and for preachers because, as he sarcastically wrote in the preface, 
he feared that many of the pastors had become servants of their bellies, better suited to be swineherds and keepers of dogs than guardians of souls and pastors. That's classic Martin Luther. If you read the large catechism, you learn about the Ten Commandments, what we are to do. You learn about the Apostles' Creed, what we are to, be- to believe. And you'll learn about the Lord's Prayer, which is how we are to pray. But I want you to listen to Luther as he introduces that third topic of prayer. Here's what he wrote. Where there is to be true prayer, there must be utter earnestness. Utter earnestness. We must feel our need. We must feel the distress that drives and impels us to cry out. Then prayer will come spontaneously as it should. And no one will need to be taught how to prepare for it. The Lord's Prayer may serve to remind us and impress upon our hearts that we not neglect to pray. For we're all lacking plenty of things. All that's missing is that we do not feel, we do not see them. God, therefore, wants you to lament and express your needs and concerns, not because he's unaware of them, but in order that you may kindle your heart to stronger and greater desires and open and spread your apron wide to receive many things. That's Martin Luther on prayer. Where there is to be true prayer, there must be utter earnestness. Ole Halsby, the old Norwegian theologian who stepped into glory about 60 years ago, wrote something similar in his little book entitled Prayer. As far as I can see, wrote Halsby, prayer has been ordained only for the helpless. Let that sink in. Prayer has been ordained only for the helpless. We use that concept uh, here around uh, in staff prayer. So instead of saying, how can we pray for you? We say, how are you helpless today? And I think that's a, that's a great way of framing the question. You guys should do this in your community groups this week. What are you helpless to do? The more you think about that question, the more that you'll realize that you are far more helpless than you ever imagined. That kind of prayer is precisely the kind of prayer we find in Psalm 6. David is in distress. He is helpless, and he is pouring out his heart to the Lord in utter earnestness. If I had to tease out the main question that Psalm 6 is addressing, I think it would be something like this. How can I maintain my hope or my confidence in the Lord when I'm in the throes of distress, when I'm agonizing over whatever situation might come my way? How do I keep my hope in the Lord when my husband speaks such cruel words to me? How do I hope in the Lord when I can't seem to land a job and the bills are piling up? How do I keep my hope in the Lord when cancer is destroying my 
body. What does Psalm 6 have to say about that? And if those situations feel foreign to you, there's enough vagueness in this psalm that you could apply it to almost any distressing situation that you face as a believer. This psalm is for everyone this morning. In fact, let me muddy those waters a little bit. What if my own sin was the cause of my troubles? Or what if my troubles exposed some ugliness within me? What if I'm not totally innocent in this deal? What does Psalm 6 have to say about that? Well, let's find out. Open your Bibles to Psalm 6. I think that you'll find it more helpful to see all 10 verses on a single page than the handful of verses that we can put on the screen. Two observations about this psalm before we dive into it. First, since the early days of the Christian church, this psalm has been considered one of seven penitential psalms. The penitential psalms are songs of lament that express spiritual distress. Another way it's been described is that the enemy in a penitential psalm is not external, like an invading army, but the enemy is internal, taking the form of guilt before God. So if you grew up in the Catholic, Lutheran, or Anglican tradition, you might recognize this psalm because it's used on Ash Wednesday, which marks the first day of Lent, the 40 days of fasting and penance before Easter. It's true, there's something penitential about this psalm, but it's not at all clear that David's inward spiritual crisis was the main cause of his distress. He is vague. So that's my first observation. This is a penitential psalm, sort of. My second observation is that this is a psalm of David. Now, we know that David composed about half, about 75 of the 150 psalms that we have. But we don't know what prompted him to write this one. It helps if we know the backstory so that we can understand the text. But in this case, we simply don't know. But here's why I think it's still helpful for us to note that David was the author. More than any of the psalms that came before it, Psalm 6 gives us a glimpse into the heart of a man of God. And what a comfort it is to us today to listen in on the prayer of a godly man like David as he navigates real-life struggles. This was no ordinary man. David was God's chosen king over the entire nation of Israel. He was the shepherd boy who killed lions and bears. He was the young man who took out Goliath with a sling and a stone. He was the warrior about whom women sang. Saul struck down his thousands, but David, his ten thousands. You know this man. He was the warrior king who subdued enemy nations, Philistines, Moabites, Syrians, Edomites, and Ammonites. We can take great comfort then in knowing that this kind of desperate prayer came from a saint like that. This tough man was in agony. Things were so bad he thought he might die. And we get to hear him pleading with his Lord for grace. 
As weaker Christians, we need examples like this, like David and Peter and Paul. The heavenly doctor Sibs, the English Puritan, said that one of the reasons that God bruises Christians is so that weaker Christians, like you and I, might not be too discouraged when we see stronger Christians shaken and bruised. We need examples like this. So take comfort in this psalm and reading it and in praying it and in singing it as you hear the groanings of David's heart and his pleas of helplessness. So this is a penitential psalm of sorts, and it is a psalm of David. Let's dive now into the text. My first point here is so obvious, I wasn't even sure if I should include it, but it's this, pray. Pray to the Lord. I was hesitant because of what Luther said. Prayer should be spontaneous. If we feel our need, we're going to cry out to our God. We must feel our need. We must feel the distress that drives and impels us to cry out. Then prayer will come spontaneously. Well, it might be obvious, but I'm going to include it because prayer doesn't always rise up within me spontaneously. This psalm up to verse 8 is a prayer. It's meant to be sung, but it is nothing less than an intensely emotional prayer from the heart of David to the Lord. Don't miss that. In the first four verses, David cries out to the Lord by name, not less than five times. Verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Verse 2, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Again in verse 2, heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Verse 3, but you, O Lord, how long? And in verse 4, turn, O Lord, deliver me. Five times in four verses, David addresses the Lord. And he uses the name Yahweh, which is the special covenant name of his God. So how do we maintain our hope or confidence in the Lord when we're in the throes of distress? First and foremost, we must pray. It's so obvious, but it's the very thing that we are slow to do. When my nose starts to run and I get congested and a fever sets in, what's the first thing I do? I run to Walgreens for NyQuil or go to urgent care or take some extra vitamin C, or force down whatever concoction Tracy mixed up. There are any number of things I go to first when I feel sick, but for some reason, I am wired not to pray. That's in part because of my pride, and it's in part because of my false sense of self-sufficiency. I don't see myself as helpless, though if you turned up the heat a bit, and told me that my cancer was incurable, I'd run to the Lord. The reality is, though, that I am just as helpless to cure my own flu as I am stage four cancer. When your car breaks down in the middle of the road, where do you turn? AAA? Maybe you call your husband. He fixes things, or he thinks he can. When you're distressed over your health, your marriage, your rebellious child, or your incompetent boss, where do you turn? 
However you answered that question, I would encourage you rather to pray. Pray to the Lord. Pray always. Pray everywhere and pray in everything, major or minor. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to your God. When distress strikes, make prayer your first line of defense. It should become for Christians a knee-jerk reaction to trouble. Because by pleading immediately to your God, you are acknowledging that you are helpless to deliver yourself. By doing so, you are acknowledging that God is all-powerful and that you are not nor is anyone else. And by doing so, we acknowledge that salvation is from the Lord. It is he who ultimately delivers. Not doctors, not husbands, not police or firefighters, not therapists, not medicine or radiation. The Lord heals. The Lord delivers. And it is the Lord who saves. So first, pray to the Lord. Second, acknowledge your sin. Here's where I found this psalm tricky. In verse 1, David clearly indicates that the distress he's under has something to do with his sin. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Those two words, rebuke and discipline, infer that David's sin was in some way related to his suffering. I don't know if his sin was the cause of his suffering or if... His sin was simply exposed by his suffering. I see both possibilities in the text. God does discipline us for sin like a a father disciplines the child he loves. But God also uses stressors in our life to expose our sin and to increase our holiness. The driver who cuts us off, the neighbor who jacks up his four-by-four on the lawn, the husband who always forgets where the clothes hamper is. God uses those kinds of things to bring to the surface sins. Sins in us like pride and impatience and a lack of love and a lack of kindness. Those irritating little things don't cause us to sin. They simply expose what is still in our heart. So whether David's sin caused his distress or if his distress was exposed by his sin, I don't know. But it is significant that David acknowledges his sin in this song. He cites no specific sin. He makes no confession beyond what we see. He simply acknowledges that his sin deserves rebuke and discipline, and then he asks for grace. Luther wrote, that you feel and acknowledge sin, this is good. Thank God and do not despair. It is one step towards health when a sick man admits and confesses his disease. So, pray to the Lord. Acknowledge your sin, however it might be related to your distress. And then third, plead with God for grace. Verse 2, David's petition here is beautiful and heart-wrenching. He begs the Lord to be gracious to him, and he leans on what he knows about his God. This Yahweh who revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai as the God who shows grace to whom he will. 
negatively, David had asked to be rebuked, but not in anger, to be disciplined, but not in wrath. Now, positively, he begs Yahweh to be gracious to him. He wants grace. And he voices his desire that God shine his grace on him in four distinct ways. One, he wants the grace of healing. He wants to be healed because his bones are troubled. And even if this sickness is a metaphor, it's a vivid metaphor. How do we describe being deathly ill? We say something like, I'm sick to my bones. David is using similar language here to describe the depth of his sickness and suffering. And then he takes it even further in the next phrase, verse 3. My soul is greatly troubled. If you grope for language to express something deeper than your bones, you have to go to your soul. To the very core of his being, David was troubled He was so troubled, he asks, how long, O Lord? He doesn't know how much longer he can take it. He wants the grace of healing. And two, he wants the grace of the Lord turning to him. Verse four, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. David feels as if the Lord is hiding his face from him. That's the way the psalmist speak in times like this. Do not hide your face from me in the day of distress. Psalm 102. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 13. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Psalm 44. Calvin said that David here bewailed the absence of his God and earnestly, there's there's Luther's word, earnestly requests tokens of his presence for that's where his happiness consists. He wants the grace of healing. He wants the grace of the Lord turning to him. And three, he wants the grace of deliverance. Verse four, his life is in jeopardy. He thinks he might die, so he asks the Lord to deliver him. Eternal Lord, deliver my life. And number four, he wants the grace of salvation. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. That's David's request for grace, that the Lord would heal, turn, deliver, and save. So David prays to the Lord. He acknowledges his sin And he begs God for grace. And as he does that, he laments. He pours out his heart to the Lord. He expresses his grief and his sense of utter earnestness, to use the language of Martin Luther, and his helplessness, to use the language of Halsby. Utter earnestness and helplessness. We've already seen his emotional language in verses one through four. I'm languishing, my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. I don't know how much longer I can hold on. But in verses 6 and 7, the intensity builds. These two verses form the centerpiece of David's lament. They need no commentary. Just reading them, you can feel David's turmoil. And if it were possible, you could taste his tears. I am weary with my moaning. 
Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. The King James Version says it like this. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. The point is this. It is okay. It is even good to pour out your heart to the Lord. There's no prize for being a stoic in your suffering when it comes to prayer. Express the pain in your soul to your Lord. He is your heavenly Father, and He desires that His children pray to Him in this way. Trust in the Lord at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. Why? Because our God is a refuge for us. I have felt something of this kind of grief over a wayward child. And I have wept my eyes out, begging God to save their soul. Utter earnestness because of my utter helplessness. That is the way we are to pray. So, how can you maintain your hope in the Lord when you're in the throes of suffering, agonizing over whatever you're up against? Pray. Acknowledge your sin. Ask for grace. Pour out your heart to the Lord. And now, number five, ground your prayer in the unchanging character of your God. Specifically, grounded in God's unfailing love for his people and in his love for his own glory. Verses 4 and 5. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me. Why? What's the ground upon which David is making his plea? He gives us two. One, for the sake of your steadfast love. And two, for in death there's no remembrance of you. In, in Sheol, who will give you praise? Two grounds for this prayer. For the sake of his steadfast love or his unfailing love. And for the sake of his praise, which is another way of saying, for the sake of his glory. Here's where the bud of hope begins to blossom in the distressed soul. God's steadfast love had a special meaning to the people of Israel and for David in particular. It was why he led them out of slavery in, in Egypt Exodus 15, we learn, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The steadfast love of the Lord was how he revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. As he passed by and allowed Moses a glimpse of the backside of his glory, the Lord proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And the steadfast love of the Lord was promised to David in particular. But my steadfast love will not depart from David. This is the word of the Lord through the mouth of the prophet Nathan. My steadfast love will not depart from David as I took it from Saul. And for a sweeping view of the steadfast love 
of the Lord, you should read Psalm 136. No less than 36 times, the psalmist declares, Yahweh's steadfast love endures forever. The principle is this. The soul in distress should base its appeal for grace upon God's steadfast love, not upon their own goodness or upon their own performance. That's one reason I believe David mentions his own sin at the beginning of this psalm. His own unworthiness forced him to recognize his need for grace. The second ground of our prayer is the glory of God. Verse 5, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Now, some have tried to use this verse to teach some form of annihilationism, where at death the person ceases to exist. That's not only foreign to this text, it's foreign to the entire Old Testament. We have many Old Testament passages that speak of the afterlife. Here are just a few. Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, your, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead." Psalm 1610, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's the same word for the underworld or the abode of the dead that's used in our text this morning. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Psalm 4915, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol and for he will receive me. There is no reason to think that these verses teach that the dead have no sense or feeling or existence. David's argument is simply this. If I die from this suffering, I can no longer praise your name among the living. I can't lead your people in celebrating your glory, Lord, if I'm dead. David's prayer is from the perspective of the living and from the perspective of the king of a kingdom, not from the perspective of heaven. John Calvin said, we know that we are placed on earth to praise God and that this is the purpose of our life. Death, it is true, puts an end to such praises, but it doesn't follow from this that the souls of the faithful, when divested of their bodies, are deprived of understanding or touched with no affection towards God. The way David uses the argument, though, is curious. He's grounding his prayer for deliverance upon the fact that God is jealous for his own glory, for the praises of his people. And if David dies from whatever this suffering was, he will no longer be able to glorify God and sing his praises among the living, among the people of his kingdom. He is leaning into the fact that God created man for his glory. Remember the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end. The chief end for which God created him is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. All that God does, he does for his glory. And his glory he will not give to another. And David banks his prayer on that truth. Psalm 79.9 sheds some light on how you and I can pray that prayer. Help us. 
O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Our prayer for grace must be grounded in the glory of God. Save me, O Lord, from these troubles for your glory, for the sake of your name. Those then are the two grounds for our prayer for grace. God's steadfast love and God's glory. So back to our question, how then can you maintain your hope in the Lord when you're in the throes of distress? Our answer is starting to come together. Pray to the Lord. Acknowledge your sin to him. Ask for grace from him. Pour out your heart to him and ground your prayers for grace in the unchangeable nature of your God, grounded in his steadfast love and in his love for his own glory. Now, if I stopped here and left you with just the example of David, it would be good. It would be good as far as it went, but it wouldn't be the whole story because as you know, David is just the shadow. Jesus is the substance. The suffering yet sinful King David is a pointer to the suffering and sinless King of Kings, Jesus. David as it was an example of a suffering servant, but Jesus is the ultimate example. 1 Peter 2, for to this, that is to suffering, you have been called because because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We talked about that two weeks ago. Jesus is our perfect example of suffering, not David. Today, though, I want to focus on the big picture. <clears throat> Psalm 6 is a prayer for grace. For all that David asks, healing, deliverance, salvation, this is a prayer for God to grant him grace. By acknowledging his sin in verse 1, that is by acknowledging that it was right for God to rebuke him, David is admitting his need for grace. He needed the Lord's favor. He needed a goodness from God that he did not deserve and that he did not earn. And though we cannot tell exactly what sin or how, sin, how the sin was related, whether it was the cause or the effect, we do know that David was helpless to lift himself up out of his miserable state. So again, this is a prayer of grace. And so it is with our misery. Our prayer must begin with an acknowledgement of our sin and our utter helplessness before God. If we think we can deliver ourselves from our sin and our suffering, we do not yet know the real condition of our souls. For we are weak, dead sinners and enemies of God. Calvin made that same connection. Men will never find a remedy for their miseries until, forgetting their own merits, they have learned to betake themselves to the free mercy of God. As we saw, David's prayer for grace was grounded in two truths about his God. 
his steadfast love and his love for his own glory. The steadfast love of the Lord upon which we ground our prayers for grace and our hope in times of distress, be it sin, sickness, or sinister foe, is the steadfast love of the Lord that was displayed at the cross. Because that is where God showed his love for us while you and I were still sinners. The son of David, nailed to the cross, bloody and bearing the wrath of God for sinners, that is steadfast love. That the king of kings would condescend to enter humanity. That he would live the perfect life of obedience that you and I could never live because of our deadness in sin that he would die on behalf of his chosen people, that he would take their sins to himself, and that he would give them his righteousness. This is steadfast love in all its brilliance. And any suffering that we endure in this life as a believer comes from the hand of that steadfast love. And it is a sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And it is that a preparing us for greater degrees of glory to come. Oh, the comfort that that should bring to us. Listen to the Apostle Paul explain this comfort to the believers in Corinth. He wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. Listen to how, how many times he repeats this comfort the God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our affliction, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly, that's a frightening word, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. It is through Christ, that we find comfort, true comfort in our sufferings. Not only are our prayers based upon the steadfast love of God, but they are also grounded in God's love for His glory. So we pray that God would glorify Himself in rescuing us from our distress. That's a biblical way to, way to pray. We saw it in Psalm 79. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake, for the sake of your steadfast love and for the sake of your glory, Lord. Save me from these troubles. What a wonderful, comforting prayer. And now David turns from his prayer and with boldness he addresses the wicked. Note this remarkable shift in his confidence. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be put to shame and greatly troubled. And they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Where did David get that kind of defiant confidence? The answer is in the song. He is helpless and utterly earnest. 
And he prayed for grace, and he leaned upon the steadfast love of his God and upon God's love for his own glory, and that gave him fresh courage and hope in the face of his enemies. God loves me, and he's faithful to his own people and to his own name. Therefore, he will hear my cry. I can be certain of that. Three times in those two verses, David tells the wicked that God heard him. Verse 8, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Verse 9, the Lord has heard my plea. And again in verse 9, the Lord accepts my prayer. David's confidence was in the character of his God, that his God was a God of steadfast love who hears him when he prays. And so it is with us today. Here's how Calvin applied it. The confidence and security which David takes to himself from the favor, from the grace of God, ought to be noticed. From this, we're taught that there's nothing in the whole world, whatever it may be, and whatever opposition it may make to us, which we may not despise. That's the boldness that we may not despise if we are fully persuaded of our being beloved by God. And by this also, we understand what his fatherly love can do for us. One final word about verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. David, David seems to be addressing the circling vultures who would want to take advantage of his miserable condition. But in faith, he orders them as the king to depart. He spoke those words in faith. And I say that because God had not yet delivered him from those enemies. Take a closer look at verse 10. David is confident that his enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, and that they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. That's still future for David, but his hope and his confidence is in the Lord who loves him and who hears and accepts his prayers. You know, in an ultimate sense, the end that David saw for his enemies that they would be ashamed and greatly troubled in a moment. That great reversal, he's troubled right now greatly, and there would be a moment in time where there would be a great reversal, and that his enemies would be the ones who would be troubled. That is exactly what happened at the cross. He disarmed, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So ultimately, what happened at the cross is what secures our hope and confidence in the face of troubling times. The grace for which we pray was purchased at the cross. It is blood-bought grace. And all the enemies we face have already been defeated at the cross. So, brothers and sisters, in times of distress... Pray to the Lord with confidence. Acknowledge your sin with humility. Ask for that blood-bought grace. Pour out your heart to your Father and ground your prayers in His steadfast love and in His glory. 
That's how Psalm 6 would have us maintain our hope in the Lord in the turmoil of pain and suffering in this life. Let me pray for us. Father, David's words in this psalm are are just overwhelming. The, the intensity of emotion that he is expressing is, uh, ex- is exhausting. Uh, but Father, we are, we are so grateful that you gave us a glimpse into the heart of this strong saint and that you have given us a weak, sinful pattern for suffering. Father, we are far more grateful for your son and that you gave us in him the perfect pattern for the troubles that we face in this life and that you have grounded and paved the way for salvation through grace, through the suffering of your son. Thank you for that, Father. Father, I pray that you would help anyone here this morning who's suffering, whatever it might be, Father, I pray that you would help them to pray from the heart earnestly the words of Psalm 6. Father, I pray that you would help them to get much comfort from the words of this psalm this morning. I pray this because of your steadfast love and for your glory. Amen. This time, parents, if you have children.